morning. Where are the woos? Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, we're going to be reading from 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17 this morning. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and know from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for an opportunity to come worship you uh, together corporately. God, we thank you for this community, um, just a community that, that loves you, that loves each other, and that loves others. And um, as we, they're loving others in McCrary Matters, we pray for them this morning that they were able to just reach their neighbors and talk about you and talk about just uh, what it looks like to love you. Um, just thank you for um, just the, the community that is, is here and, and what it means to everybody to live life and love, learn together, learn about you and worship you. Um, bless this time this morning uh, from the Pastor Lance, given the, the word this morning. Give us um, eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Thank you again for this morning. Amen. 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 You can take that with you, brother. Thank you. Okay, I got to know something before you really leave. The whole stand for the reading of God's word, is that what you all used to do? I love it. Beautiful. You might have just started a new tradition. I love it. Uh, the reason why I love it, and it's so fitting that it happened today, uh, because we're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible. Uh, if you've been with us, or perhaps this is your first Sunday amongst us, we are in a series uh, uh, really going over what it is that the early church was devoted to, and therefore, hopefully, what this church is devoted to. Um, and ultimately, here's what we've, we've unpacked so far. We went out of order, not to frustrate you, but because we had this huge push for neighborhood groups, and so the early church was devoted to the fellowship. But, of course, it says in the scriptures in Acts chapter 2 that they were also devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, we unpacked what that meant last week in regards to truly what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the, to the person, the work, the, the, the ministry, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and then it permeated all of life, and that's our hope as well. But um, here's what I know, that we have a little bit of difficulty in our day and age actually trusting that the apostles' teaching are the apostles' teaching and that they are reliable. And so we're going to unpack the reliability of the apostles' teaching today together. And so if you um, uh, have ever wanted to know da data and facts, uh, today's your day. You should um, pull out your notes app or perhaps a journal and a pen. And today will be your day to write all the things down. If you're looking for three uh, easy steps to make more money at work today, this is not your jam. Uh, but we are going to hopefully bring you into a solid and firm foundation on the reality and the reliability of the scriptures. So remember, we've been talking about devotions. And again, uh, we need to remind ourselves of what devotion means. 
It means to cling closely to, doesn't it? This is what we've been talking about. Stick close to, hold fast to something, persist in perseverance in something. And yet I wonder if uh, our devotion to God's word, um, there's all kinds of things that are getting in the way of that particular devotion. When you do some quickle, quick little Google searches, quickle? Today's going to be a good day. Quick Google searches uh, about what it is that's keeping us from uh, being devoted to the scriptures in some ways. Here are the top five like synthesized things that I found, which I found really helpful. One was time. We have a hard time carving out the time. And yet, I would say for those of us that are like, man, I just don't have time for the Bible. You got time for a lot of things that you want to do, don't you? Yeah, we do. Me too. It's not practical. Time is one thing, practicality is another, that we find it difficult to make the Bible work in life, that we've tried to do some things, and it didn't really, quote unquote, pay off for us. The end of the equation wasn't what I'd hoped for, and so you get practical, and when we get practical with the Bible, it oftentimes doesn't work, because that's not what it was actually written for. Third, we have, uh, it's difficult, it's hard to understand. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, fourthly, um, you get overwhelmed, it's a big book. Where do we start? It's actually 66 books. It's not just one. So if that didn't overwhelm you now, you're overwhelmed with 66 different books that are compiled in a library of books. Um, the other one that I think is probably where is fueling the rest of our sermon together today is that um, you believe that there are errors that you might believe that there are errors in the Bible. And so you've heard of things um, in blogs or perhaps in uh, the Da Vinci Code, which was written a long time ago, but still holds some sway in our culture, that it's full of errors, and the church compiled these documents to maintain control over feeble-minded Christians. And so that's really why we are all a slave to this human institution called the church, because after all, the church is there to control people. If you haven't heard that recently, I heard it in a beach house three weeks ago. Uh-huh, she was there. She heard it too. But you have this idea that it's full of contradictions and errors, and so you're all of a sudden uh, not going to read something or at least put your life towards something that you've heard is unreliable. And if you think that is something that is not happening, let me give you some statistics. Millennials, those, you know you're a millennial if you're a millennial, 55% of millennials do not believe that the Bible has any supernatural component to it, and it is not a reliable historical document. So not only does it not come from God, but its version of history is not reliable. 55% of millennials. Let's go down a generation to Gen Z. That's our kids. That's the teenagers in the house. Are they in the house, or are they not in the house? Some of them are in the house. There's few of them, fewer of them in the house. Talking to you, Gen Z, 68% of you believe the same thing, that it's not supernatural and it is not a reliable historical document. Over time, and particularly the last couple of three generations in this country, we're finding less and less influence that the Bible has in our lives, statistically speaking. Church or unchurched, really doesn't matter. This is a generational uh, reality done by Barna. Now, here is what I want to encourage you in, whether you're Gen Z or a boomer or wherever you are in this whole uh, continuum of generations. At some point, you're going to have to figure out who to trust. You're going, it's just going to come down to a matter of faith. You can, I can give you all the facts that I'm going to give you today. I'm going to give you charts. 
and graphics, it's going to be super boring. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. In my mind, I'm like, this is where it's at because it's so encouraging. But it will not matter to you until you actually exercise trust and faith. You're going to have to trust a human. Either the humans that put this together or the humans that wrote the latest and greatest blog posts. But either way, you're, you're trusting someone's word for what we have today. And at some point, you're going to have to have a reasonable faith. This is not a blind faith. This is, becoming a Christian isn't turning your mind off. It is exercising your mind. It is becoming curious and thinking critically without being ultra-critical. You're going to have to find a way to trust someone, and that's going to be really where we end. Like, it's, I'm not trying to cop out by saying this is about faith, but Christian walk, kind of about faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. I'm going to give you all kinds of stuff, and for those of you that want to believe it, we'll believe it. And for those of you that don't want to believe it, guess what? You won't want to believe it, and you don't. At some point, though, this is going to be a matter of the heart, and you're going to have to put your trust in what someone else says about this thing, just like you do any other thing in history. How do you know what you know? Because someone else wrote it down for you to know. See, that's how you know everything. And the same thing for the nature and the character and the will of our God and our King. So that really is the bottom line. But here is my hope fleshing this out with Melissa this last week. I was like, got a lot of data, got a lot of facts, don't know if it's going to matter for anybody. She's like, what's your hope? That's a great question. Here's my hope. My hope is that you would, if you're a believer, you'd be encouraged that this really is what it says it is. And if you're a non-believer, you'd be challenged. Challenged to think beyond what you think you know. Because if we did, did a big circle about all the knowledge of all the things, and you wrote down or did a little pie chart of how much you know, it would come down to a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a decimal point of really what is to be known in the world. And at some point, we again have to come to the realization that we approach this with humility. Yes, we ask hard questions. But at some point, we're going to have to have a bit of faith one way or the other. All right, so my hope is that you would be encouraged if you're a believer, challenged if you're not a believer, but ultimately, this has the power of life. Like, these are 66 love letters, as Larry Crabb wrote a book called 66 Love Letters. These are 66 love letters to the lost, of, 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 a, of a lover trying to woo you into relationship 66 times. I've never written that many letters in my life. But if I did to my wife when we were dating, I bet you I would have won. I didn't have to write any, and I would have won, and I did win. But he's written you over thousands of years love letters to woo you to have a relationship with him. Now, there may be some difficult things to understand in all of that, but that's ultimately what this is all about. And so I hope that you will see God's love for you. I hope that you will be encouraged with the reliability of this document. And ultimately, I hope that you see that this truly is worth the cost that it will demand on your life. This is worth it. If it wasn't worth it, I wouldn't be here. If this wasn't worth it, you shouldn't be here. But it is worth it. We know that, I think, inherently so. For the believers, let's be encouraged. For the non-believing folks uh, in the room, I'm already praying for you as I preach that the Holy Spirit would do a work in you. Because I know there are some non-believers or some real critical people of the Scriptures 
And my prayer has been all week that the Holy Spirit would open up your mind and your heart to see what's truly there. All right, so let's dig in. We just read a really profound statement. And what I'm going to do is just use that statement as our outline for the rest of the day. And it's all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. That's what we read in 2 Timothy 3, 16. And so as we unpack today, the first thing I want to talk about is that all scripture we have to have an understanding of what scripture truly is. So there's several questions to answer when we start thinking about what is scripture. If all scripture is God's breathe, we have to first answer some questions. The first question I want to answer in the all scripture part is how can I be sure that what we have is what God intended, intended to be the actual Bible? How do we know this is what God wanted? Do you know? It's an issue of canonicity. And so um, there are other traditions of Christianity under the Christian umbrella, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church. They include more books than what we would include in the, what is known as the Protestant Bible. It's known that for whatever reason. But that's what we, because in the, in the Reformation, this is when it really got clarified in the 1500s. So, so ultimately, here's the deal, right? Is that how do we know that what we have, the 66 books are here, are actually God's word? How do we know we're not missing something? How do we know that what's included is what God intended? And let me just unpack uh, uh, for us a few things. So the Apocrypha or the, I'm telling you, it's nerd alert time. (laughs) The Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books, yes, we have a hearty laugh in the back, me too. The Apocrypha did not claim to have divine authority. That's a major distinction between the books in the Bible and the Apocrypha. They never claimed to be God's word. Furthermore, the original audience did not accept them as inspired. The Jews and the Christians of the time did not see that, especially the Jewish people in the intertestamental period, meaning in between the Old and New Testaments, they did not see those scriptures as God-breathed, as inspired themselves. Thirdly, there is some real wacky theology in there. For instance, there's a story about Jesus on a playground. He accidentally kills a kid, and he resurrects him immediately. He's like, whoops. That's a literal story in the Apocrypha. The other, there's more stories in the Apocrypha that are a little bit unbelievable. Second, that's where the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, will get the, the uh, doctrine of Mary's sinlessness is in the Apocrypha. It's not in the scriptures that we would hold to. Thirdly, there is a statement in there about paying alms in order to be forgiven sins. Do you pay alms or give to a church in order to be forgiven? No. There's theological inconsistencies in those books, not to mention the story of Bell and the Dragon, which we could go on and on about, but we're not going to. But if you go and read some of that stuff, you realize then that story about Daniel is not consistent with the story in Daniel in the Old Testament. So there's inconsistencies, particularly in those books. So the canon people, the people that, that, that ultimately recognized the canon, saw those theological consistencies. But before all of that in the 300s, before all of that, the early church did not circulate those books. And I want you to hear that. These 66 books... 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, were the most circulated, popular books in the very early church. And I'm talking about like late first century, early second century. These were the ones that they were paying a scribe or a copyist to write down, which could have taken 
days or months or even a year for the whole Bible to be written down. They're paying those scribes good money, lots of money, to, pay, to write these things down and to circulate it all throughout first century Rome. That cannot be done like it's done today. So we look at these scriptures, you, it, it costs you nothing to circulate an idea today. You go online, you have a thought, you put it out there, and people can respond one way or the other. Back in the day, it cost you a lot of money and a lot of time to put these words in a manuscript, ultimately. And if you sent that manuscript across the Roman Empire, it could be that if the wrong person found you with that scroll in your, in your possession, you could be killed for it. This wasn't just free and easy Christianity back in the day. So by the time that the, the, the councils come together of Nicaea and Carthage and Athanasius do recognize the canon, it was far settled, far in advance of those councils. Those councils did not establish the canon. They recognized that which was already established by the early church, by circulation, by popularity, by eyewitnesses. If you read the book of Luke, the first part of the book of Luke, Luke 1, 1 through 4, Luke writes, he says, I want you to know for certain that what you have heard is true and you can bank on it because I'm a real good historian, but also I've asked all these eyewitnesses that could tell you if things were different. There were eyewitnesses account when this stuff was written down that they could have double-checked. So when Luke is writing this stuff, and they can go to someone else that was there, and they go, hey, are you, are you for real? Yeah, yeah, no, walked on water. Like he says it all the time, but for real happened. So there's all sorts of things there that I think we have to, to, to take notice of. So the book then, the Bible, is 66 books written over, listen to this, 1,500 years. Okay, so last night we had an incident in my home where one daughter said one thing and another daughter said another thing. And they just were together for like five minutes, and they had a little argument, and they came back, and I was like, all right, you go, tell me your story. You go, tell me your story. Guess what? They didn't match up. I'm talking, the Bible says, for 1,500 years, 40 different perspectives and authors are telling you one main story. My daughters can't do it after five minutes, much less 1,500 years. But that is the truth. And so we could think of this as like the telephone game gone wrong. And so we go, well, see there, it's not reliable. But this is not the telephone game. And I'll, I'll hope to unpack that here in just a minute. Um, 66 books, 1,500 years, three continents, three languages, 40 authors that didn't know each other, most of them. All telling one story of God's redemption through one Messiah. Now, you've probably seen this online, but I want to pull this up. It is a chart of 63,779 cross-references from one end of the Bible to the other. 63,779 cross-references. What this should tell you um, is that from beginning to end, is it up behind me? Y'all are looking, is it no? Yes? Yeah. Okay, I'll get out of the way. Great. Um, what it tells you is that from beginning to end, it is telling one beautiful and big story about God's redemption. And there's this amount of cross-referencing. One pastor did uh, some, some work on this, and he found this statistician that came up with, like, what's the probabilities of something like this coming together without contradiction, without error, and all telling one story? And the probability of it was, it's like a tornado went in through a junkyard, assembled a passenger jet, fueled it, and had it ready, uh, ready to fly. 
That's the statistical probability. Now, for the skeptics in the room, you're like, see there, it's not, it's not even probable. And for the believer in the room, they're going, man, only God could do something like that. The truth is the truth. It's really a matter of perspective on whether or not you will receive it or not. And we'll get to that. So that's the first question. How do we know that this, can, this really is what God intended it? It's circulated. There's all sorts of cross-references. There's no error. We can talk through that in just a moment. But I would also say this. How do we know that those books are the ones that God intended for us to have? Now, I need you to think with me a little bit. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 say this. No prophecy of Scripture comes through someone's own interpretation. I want you to bank that statement. Can you bank that? No prophecy of Scripture comes through someone's own interpretation. It didn't come from humans. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as though they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is called not inspiration. I'll get to that in a moment. This is superintending. God is superintending this process. We have this bad idea that the writers like got struck by a lightning bolt and just wrote down without any personality what it is that God said he was going to do, and then all of a sudden that's what came out. That's not what happened. You can see it all throughout the scriptures that God used these personalities. I'll unpack that in just a moment. But he used these personalities to write down what he wanted to write down. It could not have originated in humans, but only in God. So if God superintended the writing of the Bible, do you think he would be so haphazard as to not superintend the process of preserving the Bible? If something is that valuable and precious, you would preserve it for the one that you love. It's like a family heirloom that God is passing down over the generation to generation. It's why ultimately, I'm all over the place in my notes, so sorry, Alan. It's why ultimately, uh, in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 3, it says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. You're going to have to trust someone in this process. That the tradition that God has given you to pass down this word generation to generation to generation to generation, all the way into the 2023s of this timeline. They did so knowing that we needed it along the way, and it cost people their blood. And I'll, again, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second. The misconception, though, today is to say that the church established the canon in 4th century, but that is not true. They, again, picked the books that were already in circulation. And so we get to this third question in unpacking all Scripture. Hasn't the Bible been changed by man's interpretation over thousands of years? It didn't originate in man, but man was involved in this writing period. And the answer to that is, well, yeah. How else is he going to get it to us in our language except through us, for us, but it's not authored by us. So he uses humans. He uses uh, people to ultimately produce a perfect product. So um, here's the distinction I need you to see in this. It's not just that uh, man's interpretation has changed things over thousands of years. That's just simply not true. We do not base our understanding of the scripture based on man's interpretation, friends, but on translation. Interpretation, up for debate. Translation, not typically up for debate. The Bible, as you know, was not written in English. Someone had to go to the Hebrew, someone had to go to the Greek, 
Someone had to go to the Aramaic, small parts of Daniel, and when Jesus speaks that are, speaks that are Aramaic, they had to go to those original manuscripts and translate. So if you're translating, you are bound to the original language's rules on grammar and um, vocabulary. You don't just get to make stuff up, like along the way. You are bound to the original language's grammar and vocabulary. So when it says, Peter, do you phileo me? And we translate it, not interpret it, translate it into love. Peter, do you love me? That's proper translation. Peter, do you agape me? And then it says, Peter, do you love me? That's still proper translation, but it's a different word. And we miss some of the nuance in the English when we just depend on, ultimately, interpretations and translations over time. The translators went to the Greek, to the Hebrew, and to the Aramaic and faithfully brought forward in our translation of English or Spanish or Mandarin or whatever it may be so that we can have a faithful representation of what was written down so long ago. Now you might be asking, do we have any copies of what was written down long ago? How can we trust those copies? I'm going to put a chart up that I created long ago for many of the, uh, the courses that I've taught on this. Um, you can't see the most important part, so I do apologize. Didn't think about that until this morning, and yet here we are. Um, at the top, you, you know some things about the Roman Empire, yes? You, you've heard some things about Roman Empire? Okay, so Caesar and Tacitus and, and Suetonius and all these us's, right, uh, of the, the Latin Roman world, Aristotle, um, Homer, you've got Shakespeare, and then the New Testament. What I want you to just narrow in on is this number of copies column. And then I want you to narrow in on the percent accurate column. So you know some things about Caesar and the rest of the Roman history, and you know that based on dozens of copies. Dozens. Barely dozens. You know about um, Aristotle, you've heard of him, for about 50 copies of his work. Do you, do you doubt that Aristotle was a person? That he had significant uh, impact on, on modern day thought? No. We assume it. When we get to uh, Homer and his Odyssey, which, congratulations, high schoolers, to the worst year of your life, <laughs> there are 643 manuscripts of Homer's Odyssey. You know there are zero of Shakespeare's? But you don't question Shakespeare's significance in English literature. In every work of Shakespeare, scholars will tell you there are about 100 lines that someone has to fill in that they just don't know what Shakespeare wrote. So that's why there's variances. Now, look at the number of the New Testament manuscripts we have. What number do you see? You can't see it? 24,000. 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. That didn't make it um, more broad as time went on about what the translation could have been or what the originals might have been. Instead, it did the opposite. It narrowed it. How could it have narrowed it? Well, the more that you have documents from different areas of the world, of Turkey and of Greece and of Israel, and all of a sudden, they're all saying the same thing to 99.5% accuracy. 
99.5% accuracy. This isn't fairy tales. This is data that you have to deal with, oh, scientific-minded people. You have to deal with data. That at some point you go, 24,000? Are you kidding me? That's unheard of in all sorts of literature and history. We don't denounce that. Why are we denouncing this? Because the enemy wants us to. 99.5% accuracy. Now, you might be going, well, there you see, there you go. 0.5% off. <laughs> right? I know, y'all. That's how I would do it. That's how I do do it. Oh, 0.5% off. See there? Not 100%. You can't trust it. Okay. Of the 99% or of that 0.5% uh, inaccurate part, it's these and ands and uh or the. It's that type of. Of, uh, of a discrepancy, not an error, a discrepancy between the manuscripts. There are no theological problems when it comes to, ooh, this manuscript didn't include this over here, this manuscript did include it over here. There are zero theological problems with any of those discrepancies at 99.5% accuracy. You will not find that type of accuracy in anything that's compared to this. I want you to just see the data before you. So the compilation of ancient manuscripts we call scripture has been faithfully passed down generation to generation. And I would just say that these, are, these aren't just hunches. This is raw data I'm trying to give you so that you can see this document. If it's that reliable, then it must mean some things for us. And here's what I, where, where I want us to go for the rest of our time, is what it means for us. All scripture, that's what we mean when we mean all scripture. This book at 99.5% reliability and the 0.5% is a or the, a or an. A misspelling here, a misspelling there over time. Not differences in theology. That reliability brings us, that scripture brings us to what it says next in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, if you have an NIV or, particular, or a different um, uh, translation, ultimately you will see that this word breathed out, it means inspired. But what is inspired? It is not the authors. The authors were not inspired. The scriptures were inspired. They're the ones, they're the things that are breathed out by God, sourced in him. Um, you can see God using personality throughout the scriptures. Um, I have a great example of that. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, this is what uh, Peter says about Paul's writings. And I hope this brings you encouragement. He says, and count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved Paul, brother Paul, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Now, friends, this is where we can get great comfort. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the, uh, the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with the other scriptures. Peter the, the Pope, quote-unquote, of the early church, 
right? He is saying to a contemporary, his scriptures, his writings are on par with all of the rest of the ancient scriptures. And when he does so, he gives all of us great comfort by saying, and they're real hard to figure out. Case in point, don't know if this was said this morning, I wasn't in here, but there was supposed to be a scripture memory today with all the kids and no kids showed up to do the memory. You know why? Because if, if all the kids are like my kid, they got caught up on one word called predestination. Because it says, in him he chose us before the foundation of the world. In, in love he predestined us. And Paul, uh, Paul, Moses just looked at me, my son just went, what does that mean? Well, brother, here's a 30-minute treatise on uh, predestination. I'm so glad you asked. I've been waiting for this day. Finally, someone cares. Pretty soon he checked out he didn't care after all. Because they're hard to understand. That's a difficult concept found in Paul's writings. Peter gives us great comfort when he says like, hey, but it also helps us understand God is using personality. He's using the detail-orientedness of a medical doctor named Luke to write down in painstaking detail in Luke and in Acts exactly as it all went down. He's using these personalities to create this beautiful product we call the Scriptures. Scriptures, though, are inspired, supervised by God. The authors were, but the Scriptures themselves hold exactly what it is that God wanted us to have. If it is breathed out by God, then it holds some of the characteristics of God. Just like when I breathe breath, there are particles of me that come out in some ways. In the same ways, for God, when he breathed something out, just like he did on the disciples, he breathed on them. It's a great symbol of what the scriptures are for us, that he breathed them out. That breath came from my lungs. This scripture came from God's lungs. If that's true, it holds some characteristics of God. So is God trustworthy? Yeah. Well, then his word must be trustworthy. Is God reliable? Yeah. So then his word must, rely, must be reliable. Does God tell lies? No, so then his word can't tell a lie. It contains lies because humans are miserable people sometimes and they lie, but he doesn't lie. That's a huge distinction in all of this. So here we go, right? I mean, at some point, again, I I started this way. I'm going to just interject this. At some point, you're going to have to believe someone. 2 Timothy is telling us to believe those that have passed this down from generation to generation. And again, I mentioned earlier that some of those generations bled to make sure that what you have is a beautiful and reliable copy of those manuscripts found long ago. William Tyndale, you've heard of Tyndale, the Tyndale House Publishing? He was martyred because he was translating the Bible into English killed, burnt at the stake, because it was not supposed to be translated into English. And yet he died so that you could have this. From generation to generation, this gets passed down. And again, it was not circulated without cost. If that's true, we've got to ask ourselves, am I willing to read this with an understanding that it has been blood-bought, not just by Jesus, but by Jesus' people over thousands of years? Will I be captivated by that story? Am I going to be captivated by something I read on a, a blog post or a YouTube video? 
If the Bible is sourced in God, then it is 100% true, 100% reliable. It is the very words of God speaking to you. I want you to think about that just for a second. Don't you want to hear from the Lord? That's what you're all here for. You're all here to hear a word, to be encouraged by the saints. And what God is telling you is you can hear a word every time you open up the scriptures. It's whether or not you will accept it as God's word that matters. It is God's word. It is reliable 100%. That doesn't change. What changes on whether or not we believe it to be so. And its effectiveness in our life truly hinges on that faith. Therefore, the grammar, the history, the specific words are used in revealing something about the character of God. So that's all scripture is breathed out. It is inspired. It is sourced in God and therefore holds some of the characteristics and qualities of God himself. Finally, as we end, and some of you are going, oh, thank God he said finally. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Doesn't that what it say? Isn't that what it says? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And if you keep reading that passage, it says for teaching. I want you to catch a theme in this. For reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, complete, equipped for every good work. When you start to look at this, you start to see teaching, reproof, correction, training. What do all those words connote to you? That I got some growing up to do. That there are some things in this world that I don't know. And that I can only learn by reading God's word. It's profitable. It's good for you spiritually. It's profitable. Not that you make a profit off it. Instead, you profit from it spiritually. It is profitable. Every word in the Bible brings you spiritual profit, including the things, y'all, that you don't agree with. Including the things that you have no clue what that actually means. If you would dig in, you would find the spiritual profit in that mystery that you're trying to unpack. It is therefore profitable, though, not just for everyone. It is wise to make you unto salvation, is what we read earlier, but also it's for the training of the believer. So non-believers are not going to look at this and be like, oh, man, that's my key to life. Believers should, though. And there we go, two weeks in a row. Got to love that. Right? We look at this and we start to see ultimately that it is good news for us. It is good for us. It is valuable for every believer. It is uh, every commendation and condemnation is for your spiritual good. So it tells you how to love your enemy. It tells you whom to love appropriately. It tells you how to forgive and why. It gives you some keys to overcome anxiety and to limit yourself to living by the grace of God and not by your own efforts or wisdom. And again, every commendation and condemnation is for your spiritual good. And so I have to ask, do you believe that about the scriptures? The easiest way to rob God of his power in your life is to rip pages out of the Bible because you don't agree. You know, there was a thing in like the 70s, uh, it may have been earlier, called the Jesus Seminar, where they read the Gospels, all four Gospels, and they had beads or, or yeah, they had marbles that were colored that they voted on whether or not it, it was actual true, that it was, it did have its final source in Jesus. 
And the Jesus Seminar long ago, this is nothing new, long ago, determined that indeed 18% of the Gospels originated in Jesus. And the reason why that's important is because scholars put their name on that. And for generations, it is still infecting us to say, this isn't reliable. This isn't actually helpful for you. It didn't find its source in Jesus himself. And though it may not be the Jesus seminar today, now there's just everyone is the authority. There's no bit of scholars because hierarchy has been flattened out and doesn't matter anymore. So my buddy in a basement can come up with a really you know, soundly produced video on YouTube and spit out some half-truths and we'll be ready to believe it. It's everywhere. But do we believe that this is truly inspired by God and profitable for us? Again, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. See, if this is true, not one iota can be dismissed or counted as metaphor that isn't meant for metaphor. And again, you can rob God by picking and choosing, but ultimately God is asking you, calling you, not to just approach this with curiosity, but with humility. And that's the big elephant in the room, that when we put this aside, it is not a matter of data. It is not a matter of whether or not it's reliable. It is a matter of whether or not you're humble or not. Will we approach this with pride and arrogance like we know better in our cultural moment? oh, well, that's just outdated. I mean, after all, I mean, you know, society has moved on from all those antiquated ways, really. We're better. <laughs> we're better than they were. We're no better. And so we have an arrogance that comes with our day and age that God is calling us to submit to him and lay that down because it will cost you some things, and so will we. The issue isn't really reliability or facts. It's authority and humility. And so oftentimes, I find myself in conversations with family members, and they'll look at me and they'll go, you know, I don't really believe in the Old Testament. Believe in Jesus, love Jesus, Old Testament fairy tales. And I go, really? I'm so glad you brought him up. <laughs> Did you know how Jesus um, viewed the Old Testament? No, but I'm just going to tell you what I view on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it actually doesn't match up with Jesus' view. And so for those moments, let me equip you, dear friend. Remember, the scripture is good for teaching and training. Let me train. What does Jesus think about the Old Testament? If you're one of these people in the room that says, well, the Old Testament's fairy tale, just a bunch of allegory, we could just bring, you know, big picture takeaways from these stories, we got to go to Jesus. Matthew 5, 17 and 18 says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now look, if, as if that's not enough, you've got to hear more. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's a little tiny I, not a dot, that's the dot over the I, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Does that sound like someone who treats the Old Testament like it's just allegory or something that just you can take big picture from? No, instead, he is the Messiah, and if he is truly says he was, he also says in Matthew, what is it, 24, he says, you know, just in the days of Noah, oh, you mean the fairy tale boat that no one believes in anymore? Yeah, Jesus believed in it, and he says, just as in the days of Noah, 
See, there's two stories, three stories in the Old Testament that your friends that don't believe in the Bible are going to start to undercut. Students in the room, pay attention. One is Adam and Eve aren't real people. After all, we came from monkeys. Actually, if God's word is true, then he created Adam from the dirt and then Adam and then Eve from him. So which one is it? Jesus seemed to think that they were real people. In Matthew 19, when he starts to uncover marriage and divorce, he goes, well, you know, Adam and Eve, God created them male and female. He seems to think that they're real people. And he establishes the credibility of God's word on marriage based on the credibility of God's creation in the garden. That's story number one. The second story is Noah. Well, it can't be true. Just as in the days of Noah. The third one is Jonah. Oh, come on, you really believe that? Big fish followed, swallowed up a man, spit him out three days later. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 12, when he, asked, when he was asked to perform a miracle, dance, dance, Jesus. Jesus answers, for just, uh, for just, jo just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, if you think Jonah was just a myth, then you must think the resurrection is a myth. Because Jesus is saying, I'm going to do it exactly like that. I'm going to disappear and go into the belly of the earth, just like Jonah went into the belly of a fish. He is referring to these things as real events. Not stories or myths, but real events. So if you love Jesus, then let's take on the view of Jesus, of the scriptures. He thought every dot and iota was worthy of fulfilling. Praise God and amen that he does. And so if you're there and you go, well, I mean, this is all just a bunch of myths, great, let's look at Jesus. Or you could say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Great, let's actually look at a couple, but just for a moment. I'm not going to actually look at them. I'm just going to tell you about them. I'll give you one. I could give you, I could give you plenty. There are things that look like, okay, that doesn't say the same thing. But let's synthesize them if we will. We need to be real careful here, again, approaching the scriptures with humility. Let's take, for example, Judas's death common thing that non-believers or skeptics will look at and be like, okay, in Matthew uh, 27, it says he hanged himself. In Acts chapter 1, it says he fell in a field and his bowels gushed out. Well, which one is it? It can't be both, but can't it? Can't he have hanged himself in a field, decomposed over some time? The branch have broken, and he falls headlong in a field, and his bowels gushed out? It's a possibility. It's a reasonable possibility. So if you're going to say there's contradictions, you have to really get rid of all of the reasonable possibilities that could be there, that could explain some of the differences. You could see this in the resurrection. You could see this when there's, was it one angel or two? It's different perspectives. It's both. One was saying there was one, the other says there was two. There was at least two. One said there was one. It's just different perspectives. Same thing with what was written over Jesus' head on the cross. Is it in three languages or two or four? I mean, one of them recorded there were two, the other ones recorded there were three or four. Just different perspective depending on what they're trying to, to outline for all of us. Same thing for Acts and Matthew. Just different perspective of, a, of the same event. It's exactly what happened in my house last night with my daughters. The event is there. It's true. Something happened. One of them has a perspective over here. The other one has a perspective over here. And the same thing can be said for Matthew as Acts and Luke. So we have to be careful about approaching the scriptures in a way where we think, in our limited view, 
of the truth. We think we got it nailed. And so again, it comes back down to authority and humility. All right, so here's my final plea. I want you to think about the Bible. I want to think about the value that it has in your life. With these new facts and charts and data, ooh, aren't we encouraged? But I want you to really think about it. And I want just to not accept it in blind faith. That would actually be the worst thing that you could do, is to not examine all that I've told you today. Go back and examine it. Go back and see if it's true. And when you do, my prayer is that it wouldn't be a blind faith, but it would be an informed faith for you. And for the believer, again, I pray that this encourages you. What you hold in your hand, it really is God's word. What we sometimes neglect far too often, it really is God's good news to you. So let's be humble and curious and not arrogant when we approach God's word. And let's take note, of course, of how we feel even right now in this moment. For the believer, I pray that you're encouraged. I pray that you're hopeful that what you hold in your hands truly is the word of God. And then I hope and pray that you don't just cherish this book or somehow deify it, but that instead you go, you know what? If the words in this book are from God, and Jesus said in this book that I came to give you life, then every word here is an explanation on how you can find the life that he would have for you. So how will that inform your marriage? How will that help in your parenting, in your money management, in the job that you're thinking about taking, in the church or the house or wherever it is that you're determining to be? How will it inform you in all of these things, no matter what it is, in your emotional hope for your week this week, in your attitude towards your enemy, what does the Bible say and how can it inform these things? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for what you wrote down long ago. By your spirit, you superintended all of this and inspired this and preserved it. And for those that are here today that are wondering if they can trust this, no amount of data will convince them. So I pray, O oh Lord, that you would. I pray that you would help them see the beauty. Not just the reliability, the beauty of the story that once was, what once was lost can now be found in you. And we all at one point were lost. Some of us in this room still lost and wandering, wondering whether or not God's out to get them or if God really is who he said he is, a suffering servant on the narrow way and the path to life, acquainted well with our sorrows, and yet pointing to the path of life, which you have secured on our behalf by indeed fulfilling every iota and every dot of the law which held us captive and you have set us free through the blood shed on the cross and now testify to us even today by your spirit we are free indeed help us live in that freedom help us find guidance for the path ahead by your word would you help us O oh lord in the days ahead making sense lord of all of this but may we be a people that live by faith by trusting 
but you're a good, gracious, and present God who's for us, not just with us. We trust you and we love you. In Christ's name do we pray, amen.